Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. Christmas is one of those topics that sometimes divide Christians. Some say that it is nothing more than a retooled celebration of winter and other pagan festivals. Others reject this view and say that as believers, we should celebrate the incarnation by gift-giving songs, etc. Well, we're not going to solve that issue in this podcast. But we are going to take a look at something that my husband brought up recently, and I thought it could use some good discussion. He said that where he works, they have been playing so-called Christmas music on the loudspeaker almost nonstop since the beginning of December. He says that occasionally he'll hear the tune of a religious hymn without the lyrics, but mostly they're songs of winter, sleigh rides, snowmen, reindeer, being home for the holidays, hoping for snow, chestnuts on an open fire, and all sorts of modern, non-theologically faithful tunes. His point None of these have to do with the incarnation. And he says that he thinks, and he's observing things as well there, that it makes non-believers more sullen and lost as none of the things that I just mentioned bring redemption and hope. And that this time of year, that the culture of Christianity's music has been hijacked and removed from biblical foundations. So, Charles, do you think his assessment is correct? And... What do you think in terms of Christians evaluating the theology of the songs that they hold dear? Well, I think he certainly is correct. And uh, just about any place you go in public, uh, whether a department store, a shopping mall, a a car dealership, wherever, and they're playing these tunes and this music, we are exposed to the popular cultural expressions of the Advent season, which we generally call Christmas. I think part of the problem that lies at the heart of this, well, there are a number of strands. Let me put it that way. One of them is what has come to be the standard biblical understanding or interpretation of the events of the birth of Jesus and the nativity, and then what actually probably happened based on what we know that's in the text of Scripture and also the customs and habits of the people who actually lived at that time. And there's not a one-to-one correspondence, so this hopefully will be enlightening for some folks. But out of that, I think we have built, uh, especially in uh, United States, American, maybe to some extent British culture, a uh, popularized cultural version of the celebration of the Advent season that has incorporated these hymns and songs and this this music. And that gets into the other strand that we can address, and that is... Among the more popular Christmas songs, whether they be hymns or not, I'll just say songs because that, that tends to be the, those tend to be the ones that people know most. Who is behind the writing of these? You know, things like Jingle Bells and you know, Christmas Tree and these sort of things. Do we know who wrote them? And do we know were they trying to promote a biblical view uh, of what took place around the nativity of Jesus? So give me some examples. What's behind it and the derivation of the songs, like how did they become popular? Why are we singing about reindeer and snowmen and things like that? 
Well, uh, to address the latter part of that question, they became popular because the rise of promotional advertising in early 20th century America and the use of propaganda, people almost always associate that with political ends, and it's, it's okay to do that, but Edward Bernays, the guy who popularized the term and the concept, I think it was initially, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, I think, uh, it was initially used by marketing and businesses to promote products like cigarettes for women. And then I believe it was Coca-Cola who co-opted the image of the bona fide St. Nicholas into Santa Claus. And this all has become, in the popular mind, at least in these United States, associated with Christmas. And we can talk about this one a little bit more later, if you wish, but the one of the traditional hymns in many uh, hymn books, now I'm looking at a book, uh, a hymn book simply called The Hymn Book, and it was uh, a standard hymnal in the United Presbyterian Church, the Reformed Church in America, and the old Southern, that is PCUS, President Church of the United States, up until just maybe a couple of decades ago. And they have a whole raft of these kind of traditional Christmas hymns, like We Three Kings of Orient are. Most people who've been around a little while, they know that hymn. But even that is based on a little shaky foundation about what actually took place in terms of the uh, the nativity of Jesus and the events surrounding it. So in actual fact, the average person today doesn't really know or could explain, and this is sometimes sadly inside the church as well, tell me the story of why Christmas is important. Will you find the word Christmas in the Bible? Doctrinally, we'll call it the incarnation. What's significant about that? But one of the things that amazes me is that you go through some of the more established Christmas hymns. There's tons of good theology there, and not just in the first verse, but often in the subsequent verses. And I always wondered, like, why do we just sing these at Christmas? You know, so if you started singing Away in a Manger, for example, if that's uh, a hymn you like or a song you like, why do we only sing it at Christmas? And I've actually heard people say, why Why was the selection a Christmas song? So we sort of relegated just a time of year that we'll think about this when in actual fact, it's the most discontinuous event in the history of the world, God becoming man. So an interesting tidbit is that all the popular singers will usually have Christmas albums that they'll release and I've read that sometimes it's their best-selling albums. And some of them, quite frankly, live reprobate lives, but they will sing these hymns, and it just becomes, you know, follow the money. I can make money on a Christmas album or the Macy's Parade. Everybody knows that would be to encourage, you know, people to go buy and shop. So the commercialization of it was by... It seems to me, and you can correct me if I'm on point or off point, that if we give people warm, fuzzy feelings, that they'll go out and spend money. Yes, absolutely. That's part of the whole project of uh, the use of propaganda or the idea of creating a desire or a need among people or uh, a thought pattern, even though they didn't have it before and didn't realize that they needed it. So. Um, 
the 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 ambience. You know, when I, I once heard somebody make this statement on a talk show. I don't know it's whether it's true or not. I think I asked somebody once, or maybe even tried to notice once when I I, I did this myself. But somebody once made the observation that if you walk through a casino in Las Vegas, you know, there's a certain type of music that plays all the time. And it's, it's aimed at promoting a certain vibe and attitude. So people will play the slots and roll the dice more often. I, I don't remember the details of that, but I, uh, the one and only casino I ever visited was actually, uh, in, not in Las Vegas. It was somewhere. It was you know, on the border of, of uh, Nevada and, and Arizona. And, uh, I thought, okay, this is a chance for me to listen to this music, and it didn't seem to me to be what the guy was saying, but it creates an ambience and an attitude to promote a certain end on the part of the marketer or the department store or the seller or whatever. You know, the framework of all of this is that when the Christian movement developed, when the Church of Jesus Christ began to move out into the highways and byways of the Roman Empire— with the Great Commission burning in their hearts, you know, they encountered a pagan world like that, that of ancient Rome, where just about every month, every day, every week of the year, I'm maybe exaggerating a little bit, but not by much, was dedicated to the observation or, or the remembrance of some god or goddess or emperor or something to that effect. So, uh, or even among uh, non-Roman pagan people like the Druids in Britain, the uh, the missionaries had fa- found them observing certain times of the year, the summer solstice, the winter solstice. So there was an effort to try to realize, uh, make these people realize that, uh, okay, you're onto something here, but the problem is you've got the wrong gods and you're commemorating the wrong things. And, you know, the, the bigger picture is that our God is the God of time and space, and he is sovereign over all these things. And so there's, on that basis, it seems to me nothing uh, unbiblical about commemorating certain times of the year, certain feasts. I mean, the, the Old Covenant Church, they had various feast days and commemorations. Um, but the challenge is, you know, to keep these things on their biblical basis so that the focus uh, and the Advent season, of course, is the incarnation. Now, I know of one major branch of the Christian faith, the traditional greeting in their culture is not Merry Christmas, it's rejoice. Christ is in our midst. And, you know, that puts the focus right where it ought to be. Uh, but most people, if they say anything, it's, you know, Merry Christmas or even worse, Happy Holidays. Right. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, if you want have any, somebody to have a nice holiday on the 4th of July, if they're American, or somebody to celebrate Thanksgiving. But rarely at Thanksgiving do people say Happy Holidays, they'll say Happy Thanksgiving. Right. But I think what bothers a lot of people who correctly feel the merchandising and materialistic things is that modern Christmas tends to depict Jesus as a baby and kind of keep him as a baby, as opposed to presenting him as the glorious ascended king. And while everybody likes to say things like, please, could we not just fight this time of year? This is a time of peace and happiness. Jesus, by his own words, as recorded in Matthew 10.34, says, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. So if you want to reduce Christmas to a little baby who 
you know, came from a poor family and didn't get a chance to, you know, Mary didn't have a baby shower or however you want to look at it. And you forget this is the son of God who clothed himself in human form. And he's not a baby anymore, just like he's not on a cross anymore. And so what I think happens is people end up being attached to these sentimental songs and they associate it with Christmas without realizing what even is truly being celebrated in the in the the case of the incarnation. Yeah, and you hit on the uh, the big word there, sentimentality or sentiment. Uh, look, there's nothing wrong, I don't think, with people uh, being sentimental and having warm, fuzzy feelings about being together with family and remembering the Christmases of my childhood and all the rest of it. Uh, but there are a lot of people that don't have very good memories of those things. So maybe for not everybody does that resonate all that well. Um, but you, it goes back to something we said at the beginning. If your project is marketing and advertising, if your project is taking a particular fact, the, observ- the celebration of the observation of the Advent season and the incarnation, and you want to co-opt that to your own ends, whether it be on the very, very surface you know, okay, I, I can get some money out of this, or even more directly satanic, I want to empty it of all Christian connection, then yeah, you're going to keep Jesus as the little baby in the manger. You, you're going to have, you know, sentiment in, in various songs and hymns that have words that resonate with people because they've heard them for a long, long time. But when you compare them with what the scriptures actually teach about the nativity, narratives and the stories they don't correspond at all or barely so but they're not accurate so um yeah i mean there there are different uh, reasons why people groups individuals whatever want to co-opt this message and uh remove it from its biblical and christian historic christian foundation and we see this also in and we, we aren't here talking about motion pictures, but it's the same sort of thing. You see the same thing in popular Christmas movies that have nothing whatever to do with the Advent season and the Incarnation. I, I just saw this the other day. I, you know, uh, I think we've talked about Halloween and stuff like that before. But I was driving through a neighborhood I lived in when I first moved here to the Greenville area and uh, and been over there in a while. So I was driving through and around the corner from where I used to live, there was a house that had this gigantic, I mean, this was a two-story house, and this thing this, this thing in the yard was at least as tall as the house. I mean, it was massively tall. And I've seen, I saw these things at Halloween. They were giant skeletons. That's what I thought it was at first, but it turned out this was actually a, quote, Christmas feature. Uh, it, it was a giant skeleton-like creature, but it was from a popular movie called the Nightmare Before Christmas, which I've never seen. I had to do the research to figure out, what is that thing? Mm-hmm. But, but, I mean, it's just absolutely pagan, if, if not outright satanic. But this is what these people and many others are featuring in their yards, and that's the natural, I think, progression when the story of the birth of Jesus and all the events that surrounded it are more and more reduced and, and drained of their biblical content. It just becomes you know, anybody's wax nose to make it look what they, what they want it to look like. Right. And while it is true that the angels proclaimed peace on earth, goodwill toward men, the peace treaty is on God's terms, not on man's terms. Right. And so all you have to look at, at historically the events that happened afterwards, as soon as Herod heard that these magi wise men had come to worship the newborn king, 
it says in the scripture that he and all of Jerusalem were troubled. So they weren't really looking forward to it. And the first thing he said is, where is it likely? What did the scriptures say? And they said, oh, in Bethlehem, David city. So it was anything but peaceful for the people who then, because their children were under a certain age, were massacred. We call it the massacre of the innocents. And, and it's recorded that Rachel, you know, was weeping for her children, Rachel having come from Bethlehem. So the issue isn't that it was all hunky dory and everything was wonderful. This was the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent fighting each other. And, and we saw the reaction of that. And so even though there are many things, like people say Handel's Messiah, I love, I'll go to a Handel's Messiah sing-along. I just was at a presentation that was done by children. And I was looking at the people in the audience. They weren't moved by the, the words, because Handel fixed most of it right from scripture, but there was nobody there interpreting it. And I've seen many a secular group, some that you would think, why would they ever sing this like a gay men's chorus or whatever, that they'll go through this. So if the words don't have meaning and they're not contextualized, then, oh, yeah, it's just one of those things people, oh, isn't the music beautiful? Let's all sing together. But are they listening to the words? And and so that got me to looking at a lot of the words of the Christmas hymns that I grew up on. And I'll be honest, Charles, even though the church and the school that I went to recited the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and whatnot, they just become words if you don't realize the doctrine that's in there. So I'll just take one now, for example. Oh, come all ye faithful. We're told in some of the subsequent verses, everybody knows the first verse usually, but God of God, light of light. Right. He doesn't abhor the virgin's womb. Very God begotten, not created. Okay, so if you're singing that, it's no wonder that most people don't want to sing those subsequent verses. Another verse in that, Jesus to thee be glory given, word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Or we're right back into the Garden of Eden. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So, it's acknowledging mankind is cursed apart from Christ. And continuing in that verse, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. We're right there. We haven't gone through the entire message, but the people who sang this, the people who wrote this would have known the scriptures, whereas you don't have to know much about the scriptures to sing about Frosty the Snowman. Yes, and Joy to the World is a hymn that, <clears throat> at least in at my congregation, we do sing that throughout the year, not every week, not every month, but we don't limit it to the Advent season, as many hymn books do, and um, some churches do. But, you know, part of the problem, too, with not, the, it, it, let me say, any any hymn or traditional Christian song that is not grounded in sound doctrine or scripture it strays off into these areas where it may be a, quote, innocent little thing, but it lays the foundation for much greater aberrations. Now, let me give an example. In the traditional Christian song, Away in a Manger, 
again, most people know the first, you know, verse away in a manger, no crib for a bed, etc. But it, what's interesting is in the second stanza of that hymn, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes. But now get this, but the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. <laughs> well, um, maybe, but how do we know that? But besides that, what what is the point? Is that this this baby is, you know, absolutely divine, so he doesn't even cry like any other human baby would? Right. Uh, so there, I, there's something of a distortion there or something introduced that is taking the story of the birth of Jesus out of its real context, and it's taking it into some mystical, misty, fantasy land world where good babies never, ever cry. And I also think, if my recollection is correct, Away in a Manger was written at a time when children were dying, um, whether it was of the plague, I don't know exactly what it is. And so it was much more on be with me in my cradle, I may actually die sort of right. thing. So again, it bec- we can take something that's biblically or close to biblically accurate and turn it into something else. So another one, hark, the herald angels sing. I'm just going to extract some verse, some some phrases or sentences from various verses. God and sinners reconciled. Why do they need to be reconciled? Well, mm-hmm. if you're schooled in what the Bible says, that's why he came to reconcile. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. So mm-hmm. we're proclaiming Jesus is God. The third verse has something that says, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Is it any wonder that if these actually get played or sung in popular culture, that these verses don't become prominent? And then the fifth verse, Adam's likeness, Lord, efface, stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Let us thee, though lost, regain thee, the life, the inner man, to all thyself impart, formed in each believing heart. So it's poetic, it's nice, but few people ever sing that verse. I wonder why. And in many hymnals, you'll just get the first three verses or just one verse. And so these hymns are methods of praising God and teaching, and we've lost a lot of that. Yeah, it's interesting that you chose that one because um, I'm just, as we were talking about it, uh, checking the two hymnals that uh, most of the churches that I have pastored have used, and neither of them, one is more recently published than the other, both are grounded in Reformed tradition, both are patterned on the order of uh, chapters in the Westminster Confession. And both of them have the shorter version of Hark the Herald, only the first three stanzas. When you were quoting the others, I'm like, where is that? That's not in here, you know. Exactly. Now, this following hymn that I'm going to extract some of the lines from, I had never, ever heard until the early 2000s. Hmm. And to me, not only is it doctrinally rich, but it's it's beautiful in terms of placing us in the context of who Christ is, and it's called Of the Father's Love Begotten. Hmm. Okay. Within that, verse 1, I'll not read the whole thing because it's got nine verses, but he is Alpha and Omega, all right? So if you sing that, and you picture singing that as a child, you should ask, Mommy, Daddy, what does Alpha and Omega mean? Where does that hmm. come from? Okay, verse 2, this one I'll read most of it. At his word, the worlds were framed. He commanded, it was done. 
heaven and earth and depths of ocean in their threefold order one, all that grows beneath the shining of the moon and burning sun evermore and evermore. So this is not off that it doesn't matter, puts it right into the terms of creation, things that we see and can perceive. Verse three, he is found in human fashion, death and sorrow here to know that the race of Adam's children doomed by law to endless woe may not henceforth die and perish in the dreadful gulf below evermore and evermore. You have to process that and you're singing it. And the thing about music, and I'm sure you'll agree, Charles, is it sticks with you. You can have songs playing in your head. And the whole reason that my husband commented on this uh, early on, that I explained how we started this discussion, was that, you know, he doesn't want Frosty the Snowman playing in his head, but it plays in his head because music is that pronounced an influence on people's lives. So take things that would teach and edify and inform people of their need for Christ and turn it into Santa knows if you've been bad or good. And I suppose that we in the um, Reformed Protestant tradition are somewhat the poorer for the lack of emphasis on singing in one sense. Now, obviously, there is a rich hymnody in Protestant Reformation circles. But when we go back to the earliest church, uh, a significant part of their worship was uh, chanting the the Psalms and other traditional Christian hymns. The the spoken words were the, the sermon, the homily, and the reading of uh, the, the letters of Paul or a passage from the Older Testament. But a lot of the, the service itself was sung. And there's a reason for that. You just hit the nail on the head with it. People remember it. It stays with you longer. It's it's a good way of learning and having it land with you, so to speak. Now, the um, it's interesting that the hymn that you referred to of the Father's Love Begotten, uh, if you look at who wrote that hymn, Aurelius Clemens Prudentius, and if I'm reading this correctly, it was written between the years A.D. 348 and 413. Hmm. And that's something that's common with a lot of these really good, solid pieces of music and hymnody, whether it be Advent, Incarnation season, or otherwise, is they come to us from the early church where there was a good deal more emphasis on theology and doctrine because they were wrestling with these issues. Um, you you mentioned uh, the previous hymn. I forgot which one it was, but you know, go it 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 has words from the Nicene Creed, right. and uh, um, one of my favorites is not a traditional Christian hymn, but Holy God, we praise Thy name, Lord of all, we bow before Thee. That's almost like singing the Nicene Creed, but I, there's some churches that have never even heard that hymn. So it's important, I think, that we worship God and align ourselves with the truth of God's law word, and and that includes in the various seasons of the holidays, and not be corrupted by the spirit of the age, which wants less and less to do with the true story of Jesus. Now, I um, I wanted to mention one other thing about a popular Christian song. I referred to it earlier, We Three Kings of Orion Are. Now, uh, that, of course, is a reference to the three wise men, and Another common sight in people's front yards nowadays, and I'd much rather see this than the giant skeleton thing, uh, the creches or manger scenes. But even with that, we have a bit of a disconnect between what Scripture says and what's being p- depicted in the manger scene. Because when you read the Gospel accounts, the wise men did not show up the moment Jesus was born. 
although most of the manger scenes uh, picture them being there when Jesus is a little baby. The other thing is, we know that three gifts were brought, but there's nothing whatever in Scripture that says there were three of the three wise men. It could have been five, it could have been 20, it could have been one or two. Uh, we don't really know. That part's not given to us. We do know there were three gifts. So popular art over the centuries has depicted them as three different individuals with three different gifts, even though Scripture doesn't say that at all. Right. And um, thanks to a book you suggested that I read, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, even the whole idea that Jerusalem, excuse me, that Bethlehem was this really wicked, nasty place that wouldn't even give a pregnant woman a place to have her baby, and she was relegated to a barn. Well, in those days, they would have inns, and if the inns are full, the inns are full, or they had an upstairs room, like the upper room that Jesus has his apostles prepare the Passover for. Well, somebody's already there, they're already there. And so it was not uncommon for average people at night to bring their animals into the home. And so there would be a place in the home where the animals would be. And if that's where Jesus was placed and as a manger was turned into a crib, it's so easy to take a social gospel and say, yes, the poor or the oppressed or whatever. He wasn't impressed. Remember, Mary and Joseph were going back to a place of their lineage and the Hebrew people were hospitable towards each other. So when we make it into something that it wasn't, then, and, and you see this so many times in children's depiction of the nativity, you know, there's no room for them in the inn and they slam the door. That's not what the scripture says. It says there was no room for them in the inn. Well, I've gone on places and I needed a place to stay and the motel or the hotel says no vacancy. That's what happened the point is not lost that Jesus wasn't born in a palace, but it's not like he was a homeless guy under the bridge. Yeah, and that's a classic example of how we read into a text things that are in our heads based on our culture, uh, even though it doesn't correspond at all with the time being depicted in the gospel stories of Jesus' birth. And the book you mentioned and the author, Dr. Kenneth Bailey, uh, is, is a marvelous resource uh, and if I may, let me just say a word about him in that, you know, this man, he passed on a few years ago, but uh, he taught in Protestant seminaries in Egypt, Jordan, Israel, a number of Middle Eastern co- countries. He was fluent in most all the modern uh, M- Middle Eastern languages, including several of of the ancient ones. And he's, the, the important thing is he spent a lot of time uh, with people in Palestine and Jordan and other places where and in some cases, very obscure places where they still, to some extent, live like they did back in those days. And so, you know, when we read there was no room for them in the inn, well, we think of the Motel 6 or whatever is popular in your area. Well, no, 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 no. That actually referred to the back end, the back part of a typical ancient Palestinian home that would have been reserved for guests or would have been given to guests if they had no other place to stay. Uh, we read that as, you know, a separate building. And of course, in the creches, it's depicted as the, some outside part of a barn. But that doesn't correspond at all uh, to what the quote in being referred to was like in that culture. And also, as you mentioned, and I think he even uses very strong language to say that a woman who was pregnant that far along in a pregnancy coming to 
the home of her family, her blood relations, her ancestors. The fact that she could not find a place to stay was simply unheard of. It just never would have happened that way. Yeah. Again, a modern twist. And anytime, and that's really the issue with modern depictions that are video, television, movies, whatever, is that there's going to be an editorial point of view that says, okay, this is how it was. And because visuals are just so strong, then it ends up being cemented. So, you know, every kid who's grown up in a church has gone to the Christmas pageant, right? And they have the Christmas pageant. Well, Christmas was anything other than a pageant in terms of what most people would have witnessed at the time. Smelly shepherds, you know, you don't have the ambassadors from all the major political realms there to greet Jesus. But at the same time, it was splendor. You had the heavenly host. You had the angels proclaiming in the sky. I don't think that would have been missed by a lot of people. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? It was enough that the shepherds decided we got to go figure this out because this is something that doesn't happen every single day. So it's important to read the scripture, a faithful rendering of scripture, versions that are faithful to the original manuscripts, etc. And okay, so we don't know everything, but we want to be careful that we don't read things into it. Now, you talked about a modern one. Everybody likes Mary, did you know? Mm, Mary, did you know? Well, Mary knew because the angel Gabriel told her. No, he didn't give her you know, a look into the future so that she saw everything. But she knew, and Joseph knew, who their child was. And the Bible recounts that even to the time that they're, you know, at at the temple and, you know, he isn't with them when they return home. So I think Hallmark movies, not that they spend a lot of time on the birth of Jesus, but even the modern depictions of it, it's important to go, is this faithful to Scripture? Yeah, and I need to uh, backtrack just a moment and correct something that uh, uh, I said a few moments ago about the um, there's no room for them in the inn and what really happened there. Um, I got that a little mixed up. Um, th- th- what that meant was in that context is that there, the, the typical place where a guest would stay, uh, it was not available, either because all the all the homes were booked up with other visitors, uh, family members coming. So where they ended up staying in whatever home this was, uh, was the place uh, toward the front part uh, of the house where the cattle would normally have been quartered, as you referenced. And that's why Jesus wound up being laid in the manger, um, which is the place where the cattle, when they're inside of the home, rather than being left outside to become prey for predators and things such as that, or be stolen, they would have brought in. So um, the idea of there was no room for the them in the end was not a no vacancy sign at the local motel. Rather, most of the people had place reserves for guests in their own homes, but in this case, there was no place for them in the usual locations in the homes of the people. So where they ended up staying was in the part of someone's home what would have been used for quartering uh, livestock at night. Right. And anybody who's ever um, experienced an event that was happening close to where they live it's sometimes hard to find a place to stay. 
And every why were that why were all these people in Bethlehem? It wasn't because they were going to have a Christmas party because that's not <laughs> what they were thinking. It's because Caesar Augustus had said everybody had to go for the census. So if you had to go back to this place, it isn't beyond the pale to say there would be no room because these would already have been booked up. And so the context is important and not this image that we have. You know, you, you spoke earlier about this idea that everybody should be home for Christmas. I had some friends who were Jewish of all things, and she was once complaining that she, you know, she just wishes all her kids would be home for Christmas. And I asked her, I said, but you guys are Jewish. She said, yes, yes, yes. But we put up a tree and everything else because, you know, it's a nice festive custom. And I just want everybody home to, to be able to experience. I said, let me ask you a question. Have the holidays ever brought harmony and peace? She goes, well, no, usually this kid is fighting with his father and everything else. And I said, so why do you want it? And she goes, I I don't know. I just want it. Right. So instead of, and and this is someone who didn't necessarily receive my evangelism at the time for her need for a savior, she bought into the sentimentality and that's what became important. And that's what she was lamenting that they didn't have the, the depictions, the way you see them in movies or television. Yes, and a lot of people think that if they can get on board with the warm, fuzzy feelings and the sentimentality part, then you know that's what it's all about. But as you just pointed out, uh, and, and this is an opportunity to point out, as Dr. Rushdoony often did, that politics is unavoidable. These people were there because they, they came to Bethlehem because of politics, because of government action, and because of taxation. What do you know? The same sort of things that we have to deal with today. So the the intertwined nature of reality in a fallen world and God's plan for this world and its redemption and the expansion of his kingdom are unavoidably clashing with humanistic politics and governmental actions. And it's amazing how Christians, because this of this, uh, I'll say, overemphasis on sentiment and pietism, they, they're completely blind to the reality of these facts that by its very nature the proclamation of the message of the kingdom is a proclamation about the need for uh, human government marriage family life everything to bow the knee to the true king who was born on that christmas day all right two more songs that i have to highlight um people are familiar with O come O come emmanuel But look at some of the phrases, the lines in it. And ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Now, this is not talking about the children of Israel being under Roman rule. It's the ransom to pay for the sin of the first Adam. Mm -hmm. Second verse. Um, O come, thou Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times did give the law in cloud and majesty and awe. No, we're not under law. We're under grace. No, this this hymn is proclaiming the law. Next verse. O come, thou rod of Jesse. Okay, Jesse being the um, the father of David. Re thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell, thy people save and give them victory or the grave. Really good theology there. Okay. A couple of verses down. O come, thou key of David, come, 
and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high and close the path to misery. So it's an acknowledgement that those apart from Christ are miserable. And isn't it interesting that a lot of people are miserable at quote unquote Christmas time, not because they recognize their sin, but they can't kind of get involved with the sentimentality of it all. And in a sense, without Christ, you should be lonely. You should be desperate because everything in your being is crying out for the need to be saved, right? So by not singing these hymns, by not hearing these words, it becomes harder and harder to sort out, well, what exactly is my problem here? And the last verse, O come thou wisdom from on high and order all things far and nigh to us the path of knowledge show and cause us in her ways to go. So the advent of the second person of the Trinity coming and being born was to show us the path of knowledge, which we could not possibly know apart from the Holy Spirit. Yes, and once again, uh, you uh, you win the prize, Andrea. <laughs> I win the we've, prize. Yes, we've got uh, another um, traditional hymn that is filled with solid teaching and theology, as you just mentioned, and guess what? It was not written by Fanny Crosby. <laughs> this um, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel actually is from a 12th century uh, hymn, Latin antiphons, and um, Veni Emmanuel is the tune. And in, in the hymn book that I'm looking at, I don't know if this is listed, uh, the hymn up on the opposite page, as a as an Advent hymn, but it's Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. Right. Um, that's from the Liturgy of St. James in the 5th century. Yeah. Not to say that every hymn or chant that was used in the ancient church is solid and all that sort of thing, but we you, it's generally free of the kind of um, gender-propagandized modern marketing consumerist uh, sentiment and, and uh, influence that we find in so much of American culture. And this is not, this issue that we're focusing on is not uh, uh, something that's just cropped up from uh, the the evil youth culture of the 1960s and, and after. This goes all the way back to the early 20th century, really, where, as I said, people with other agendas than making sure that families celebrated the true meaning of the Advent season and the incarnation of Christ were co-opting that for larger purposes, usually to uh, line their pockets. Yeah. The last one I will highlight, I could have gone on and on, but I eventually said, this is just, <laughs> we like to keep our podcasts under an hour. Angels from the realms of glory. Mm -hmm. Okay. So these are the angels who sang of creation story. So placing creation and then tying it in with now proclaim Messiah's birth. So I dare to say, would most people today know what Messiah means, what Christ means? I think a lot of people think Christ is his last name. So there was Mary Christ and Joseph Christ, and then we had mm -hmm. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yes. No, it was a title and it was an expected title. So the, the translate, the translated meaning is the anointed one. Okay, so here are some of the latter verses. Okay, I'm in verse five now of this. Sinners wrung with true repentance, doomed for guilt to endless pains. Justice now revokes the sentence. Mercy calls you, break your chains. 
Okay, so we have God's justice and mercy together. Number six, though an infant, now we view him, he shall fill his father's throne, gather all the nations to him, every knee shall then bow down. Whoever wrote this knew the Bible because we're not just talking about Genesis and we're not just talking about Revelation, we're talking about the stuff in between. And then the final verse, all creation not Mother Nature, all creation, join in praising God the Father, Spirit, Son, evermore your voices raising to the eternal three in one. So it's also a Trinitarian hymn. Yes. You see, by avoiding good, sound doctrine in hymns and leaving it to, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. I was unhappy. Now I'm happy. That all may be true, but if you miss the doctrinal realities of how this happened, I like this particularly, singers rung with true repentance, not somebody who just wants to get out of jail or wants to not be in trouble, rung with true repentance. I get this picture, Charles, of like wringing out a rag and getting all the water out of it, the motivation to wring all that sin from your life again, comes from the Holy Spirit, but with a recognition that without that, it's not just saying yes to Jesus. You need to be wrung with true repentance. Yes, and I hope that uh, our little excursion into this area of discussion for today's podcast uh, will be helpful and that um, our folks will listen to this with some degree of appreciation and recognize that any time uh, day or night, day of week of the year, whatever, we are enjoined to promote the kingship of Christ in all areas. And, you know, you mentioned the uh, the emphasis on pietistic personal salvation, making the focus on something other than the totality of God's plan. I, I think that also applies in eschatology. I mean, if you are not embracing a post-millennial optimistic eschatology, then uh, you're not interested in, you know, him... Uh, coming to make the blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Right, exactly, exactly. These hymns are often eschatologically very post-millennial in as much as, instead of using fancy terms, let's just say proclaiming the victory of Jesus Christ. None of what I recounted in these hymns talked about the church being rescued and that the church really isn't God's chosen people. As a matter of fact, with understanding that the church is and inherits the blessings and the promises to Israel, O come Emmanuel and ransom captive Israel. We're that Israel. No, we hadn't been born at that time when Jesus was, but just like those in the old, under the old covenant look forward to Christ, we look back to him. So we are the Israel of God and we should be ready and willing to proclaim not only that truth, but that victory is part and parcel of the Christian faith. So if you're walking around looking at how bad it all is, go and read Psalm 2. It's not at all what you think. And you can sing joy to the world while you're at it. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, thanks, Charles, for indulging me. And uh, I'm sure there are a lot of people who hopefully will go out and buy a hymnal if they don't have one. You can probably find them on eBay or something like that. And look at the latter verses, the ones that have have been omitted, and usually it'll say, well, because you can't put it all in a book, 
you have to make editorial decisions. Okay, but there's some editorial decisions that also obscure the reality of the Christian faith. Right. All right. Well, listeners, out of the question podcast at gmail.com is how you reach us. And Charles, I guess I'll talk to you next year. Yes. Happy blessings of the Advent season. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.